You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Marian Barta loved the arts. She was a mother of two children and an educator to many more. She was a primary school teacher beloved by her students and employers alike. But in 1997, something changed. Marian Barta quit her job, sold her house, changed her name and left, it seems, to start fresh in Europe. Then she returned, didn't contact anyone in her family, made some really big cash withdrawals and just dropped off the face of the earth. That's the Australian's national crime correspondent, David Murray. The mystery of Marion Barter's disappearance has endured for more than 25 years. Dave has been covering crime for about that long and has had eyes on this case since 2019. This story has come a long way in the last four years. Back in 2019, I first spoke to Marion's daughter, Sally Layden. She had very, very little information apart from a gut feeling that something bad had happened to her mother. Since then, there has been a hit podcast called The Lady Vanishes, and that has brought on all of these supporters, these amateur sleuths who have done an incredible job in tracking down information. Quite amazing what they've been able to find out. Last year, the New South Wales state coroner, Teresa O'Sullivan, joined the fray, picking up the precious few clues available in the case in hopes of unravelling what might have become of this missing Queensland mother. They were hard words to hear, but ones Marion Barter's family have been waiting decades for. For the first time since the Gold Coast teacher went missing, a court has been told she is deceased. The inquest has taken a turn nobody could have predicted. Where we are now is that from nothing, suddenly at the centre of these inquiries is a man named Rick Bloom. And he is a man who has been convicted and jailed for fraud in France. He was originally from Belgium. He's used 50 aliases that we know of so far. And he has admitted on oath at the inquest that he was having an affair with Marion Barter for four months before she went missing. There are a whole range of allegations against Rick Bloom, and essentially a lot of these revolve around him being a romance scammer and targeting middle-aged women and being a very, very smooth operator who then leaves these women in the lurch and takes off with their money. The pivotal connection between Rick Bloom and Marion Barter was made by one of those amateur sleuths. One of these researchers, Joni Condos, she found in researching Trove, a database for old newspapers and so on, an old ad that had been placed by someone who had the same surname that Marion had changed her name to. And it was a man looking for a relationship with a view to marriage. From there, they were able to identify that man as being Rick Blum. And the links have followed from that one discovery by Joni, the researcher. They have been able to confirm that Rick Blum was in this relationship with Marion Barter immediately before she went missing. And as far as Rick Blum or any of his many aliases is concerned, Marion's disappearance could just be the tip of the iceberg. 
A handful of women across the pond have alleged Bloom relieved them of their savings in frauds and scams dating back decades. It's a ruse that's attracted international attention with a joint investigation by two Belgian newspapers revealing Bloom's victims could be as plentiful as his identities. I actually spoke to Rick Bloom last week. I called him up. I wasn't actually sure if he would answer the call and then if he would, whether he would talk to me. He picked up the phone. I told him who I was and instead of hanging up, he stayed on the phone. He was a very, very smooth operator. He was very calm. He chuckled at some of my questions. He did answer them. He denied any special interest in poisons because this has actually also come up in another context where one of the widows in Belgium who says that she was defrauded by him says that she was afraid he was going to poison her. But he remained very cool, calm and collected. He eventually said he had to go. His counsel had told him not to talk. But he says, again, he knows nothing about Marion's disappearance. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell and this final episode of the series. In the clip at the top of the episode, you heard that the victims could be as plentiful as Rick Bloom's identities. I agree with that. Also, David Murray said he spoke with Rick Bloom, that Rick Bloom did not hang up when he introduced himself. That tells me he was feeling confident that he can sway people to believe his narrative. Well, let's not forget that this bloke has been manipulating people all of his life with no real consequence. And that's further reinforced and compounded when David Murray said that he was calm. In fact, he answered questions even chuckling and laughing at some of them. That's instructive as it reveals to me that that's how seriously he's taking all of this. It's totally inappropriate under the circumstances. This is not a game. Marion's life matters. David said he was a smooth operator. Well, that's been said many times before by many women. And he said that in the face of questioning, Rick Bloom remained cool, calm and collected. That's a different demeanour to how he presented at the inquest. The frail man who stutters and stammers and struggles to recall even the most basic of information, like his birth name. Rick Bloom told him he knew nothing about Marion's disappearance. Well, he did a full 360 and had plenty to say at the coroner's inquest, propping up many men she may be with, and saying that she wanted, according to him and his evidence this year, she didn't want to be with her family. It's helpful to hear this side of Rick Bloom, the side presented to many women over the years, which is in stark contrast to how he presented at the inquest. It's worth defining deception here. Deception is a deliberate attempt to create a false impression. We know that it's Rick Bloom's master tradecraft, manufacturing and inhabiting different identities and lives with such ease. He presented himself as a single man seeking an unattached woman for marriage. He proposed to multiple women, promised a life overseas to several of them, whilst using multiple different identities when he was already married with children. He lied in court under oath about Andre Flum having dementia and being in a wheelchair, and he lied about all the women lying about what he did to them, 
and his repeat pattern of behaviour towards them. These are lies by commission, direct lies, which are more rare. Most people tend to lie by omission, omitting facts. You know, facts like he's already married to Diane, who he has children with. Facts like he's been in prison. And that's quite a big one too. I believe he's also feigned ignorance, forgetfulness and memory loss at times, which are his go-to tactics for the tough questions, along with obfuscating and stuttering and stammering when it suits him, and also to buy time. Importantly, there's evidence that Rick Bloom uses both tactics as well as giving a superb performance with his poor me syndrome, using the wheelie walker, the I'm old and frail routine at court, poor me syndrome, well, the symptoms that became acute at the point of questioning and accountability. And I've seen that tactic by so many serial perpetrators over the years, which was why I coined the term PMS, poor me syndrome, in 2019. However, in between Rick Bloom's performances, which I believe are for the benefit of the court, David Murray's account shows the smooth operator side of Rick Bloom, a total departure from the man who hobbled into the coroner's court through the side door. Okay, with that having been said, let's dive back into the continuation of the circumstantial evidence. At point 24 and 25, I have the postcard Marion wrote to her friend T while she was in England. This is the postcard with Jane Austen's house on the front of it, processed on July the 28th, 1997 at Guildford. Marion's friend sent it to Sally, and Sally said that she's forever grateful for that. For me, it contains important evidence. Now, I have read it before, but here's a reminder of what Marion wrote. Dearest T, hi and greetings from beautiful England. Loving every minute and having the best time of my life. Have seen and explored so many places and keep finding more I want to see. Roman history is particularly fascinating. Don't think about school as often anymore. Here you can buy your own school if you have $65,000 to $150,000. Beautiful horse country. You'd love it all. Weather improving. Have hired a small car and love staying in B&Bs. People are so helpful and friendly. Love to X. It couldn't be deciphered what that was by Sally. Colin and yourself. Don't work too hard. Sending you X vibes. Again, the X couldn't be deciphered by Sally. Love always, Marion. Kiss, 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 kiss. So Rick Bloom was into Roman history, and here Marion mentions Roman history. And it is here in this postcard that she mentions buying the school. And in his evidence, he talked about Marion wanting to buy a school. Now, we've already talked about that. But again, how did he know this? And it's the timing of her writing this, and the fact that he knew it and repeated it when he gave his evidence... That's doubly significant to me. Then there's the third aspect to this, which is Marion's bank account being emptied of $5,000 a day for approximately three and a half weeks, starting in mid-August 1997, and then the final transfer was made of $80,000 to another unknown account in October 1997. So Marion documents this in a postcard while she's in the UK at the end of July, and then weeks later money starts to come out of her account. It's a similar amount to that detail by Marion, rightly or wrongly, to buy a school in England, right? It's about $160,000, give or take. How does Rick Bloom know all of this if he was not with Marion at the time? Joining these dots together make it more salient and significant. 
So at 26, I've got Marion returning and telling no one, obviously having the conversation with Sally on August the 1st, but on August the 2nd, she returns and then you have money leaving her account and the big transaction, money 80,000, and the timeline matched against Rick Bloom returning just before that, but also opening up the bank account and closing the bank account. So he opens the account on October the 14th and closed it on the 27th. That's significant. You know, the fact Marion doesn't say she's coming back, why? We talked about that, didn't we? And, you know, it's my belief it's someone or something that brings her back, but it's not for, it's not part of the planned trip. She was meant to be away for a year and then the money. So some might conclude, well, she's come back to get money. Well, you can get money when you're overseas. So what would she be coming back for and living in a hotel or wherever it might be in an area that's not her area and money coming out and her not telling anyone? And then you've got Rip Bloom, who also came back and you've got him opening accounts and closing accounts in the same time window, as well as him physically being back in the country. That's two overlays of timelines. Another secret. Yes. And it's certainly with the account that Rick Bloom opened, it was actually a safety deposit envelope. So it was literally like a physical envelope in the bank. So it was a safety deposit service. So what, and he was the only signatory on that safety deposit service. So Diane was not included. So if Diane, the CBA bank investigator that gave testimony, said that if Diane had have walked into that bank, Rick Bloom's wife, she would not have been allowed to access that safety deposit facility. It was only him. It was just for him. And he gave numerous accounts over the days of evidence about what was actually in that safety deposit envelope. And it ranged from money, then it went to share and bond certificates, then it went to his grandfather's coins. So there was a numerous, numerous reasons and things given as to the contents of that. So yeah, it was an actual bank account as such where money would be transferred in and out. It was a physical facility where he could put stuff basically under lock and key. Well, that's very interesting. And the fact that he's the only signatory, and of course you would want to dig into that. And the fact that he can't remember exactly what it was tells me he absolutely remembers exactly what it was, right? That's... Yes. Well, he was quite specific. So he actually had a large vaulted drawer in another safety deposit facility in Sydney a while later after that. So a big, huge, large drawer. And again, he was the only signatory. No one else could access it. So it was almost like his little his little hidey hole where he was able to put things of value or significance and they were safe and nobody else could access them. So yes, it is It is a very important point within the timeline itself. Absolutely. And in that same timeline, he moves house on the 26th of October. And if that account closed on the 27th, so again, we talked about his behaviour post-offence that he tends to move after each gaslighting, conning, manipulating of each woman, he moves. And again, I believe that's a distance mechanism again. It's him creating distance. I think that that is significant, that time window where we know that Marion, if she were alive, would have called her son Owen on his birthday, October the 18th. And we get the money movement 
we get Rick Bloom's movement and there's no phone call from Marion. That's significant. Yes, it is. Because if she had have just made a call, sent a gift, like she, she, she sent Deirdre a gift around approximately a month early from the UK for her birthday, Sally and I speak about this all the time. If she had have just done that with Owen, sent a gift or sent something over, made some kind of connection, then she would have had until Christmas. So Sally is of that view that there was no other other significant birthdays happening. There was nothing happening. Marianne, as far as she was aware, was off on her whirlwind trip. She was on the Orient Express. She was doing her thing. So therefore, I think that is very significant that Owen never got any connection or contact whatsoever. Yes, and you know that, you know, in the knowledge that it was his birthday, but a certain person may not have known that. So when these actions have have occurred, so would not know that that's a significant date where the alarm would be raised. But I think that that is an important period of time, the timeline, the movement of money, Rick Bloom and the opening, the closing of an account and the move, the physical move of house. And of course, before that, I mean, this is my point, 28, we did talk about Marion's Medicare card being used in Grafton on August the 13th. And we talked about the fact that wasn't an area Marion would spend time. And of course, she didn't have anything. She didn't have a car. She didn't have a thing. She didn't have a personal effects. And it's a very strange place for her to spend time. But what we do know is that Rick Bloom had an anchor point there, the swimming club. So this was an area that he knew. So I always look at anchor points of people, connections of, is it an area that who feels comfortable there? Who and Rick Bloom did. So again, we've got a, the geography point and the Medicare card. It was also a travel point too, Laura. So just mentioning that too, not only the swimming, swimming events, but it was also the train there went from Sydney, if you were to head north to Queensland or, you know, back down to Sydney, that was actually on the train line too. That could also be somewhere he was familiar with because of the amount of travel that he did down to Sydney and back up again to northern New South Wales. He would have known Grafton quite well. Interesting, but just not an area that Sally thinks that Marion would have spent time or that would have been the natural place she puts a pin in the map and if she comes back, goes to. No, but then again, we do have Rick Bloom suggesting that Marion, she had apparently told him in the three times when they were just meeting for a sexual relationship that she was planning to purchase a property in Iluka, which is just at the beachside, a very small fishing village near Grafton. So I guess when he read that her Medicare card had been used in Grafton, he, you know, coincidentally suggested that, oh, she was thinking of buying a home in Iluka in northern New South Wales, which is very close to Grafton. Small, quiet fishing village, not much happens there. So she was going to buy a house there, apparently. Gosh, they seem to have been having a lot of conversations about these key details when they're just apparently having sex three times. That really is quite stunning. He provides this level of detail. That's right. And especially with a motorbike, you know, of a so-called bikey sitting outside her front door while he was going in and visiting. I mean, how did he not know? How did he know that that man wasn't inside the home? So again, yes, amazing coincidences. 
Yes, and we'll talk about the the characteristic of lying continuously, because at 29, it weaves in here that Rick Bloom had many names. And of course, I've referred to him as the man of many names. Many other people have referred to him as that as well. And he had passports. And it's my belief they were for nefarious reasons. But when he was questioned, he said he didn't know why he had all those passports and names. And I, I find that absolutely staggering when someone's asked you, when you put all this time and energy across your life course to having multiple names, you know, he's listed as having at least 50 different names, some of which he changed via depot. And he had at least 10 different passports. I mean, why does a man who sells furniture need all of these identities? And when he's asked under oath why, he says he doesn't know. And that's staggering. And then he offers up, well, maybe it was a fantasy. And it really does stand out to me. You know, when he's pressed, he just says, I mean, he doesn't like being pressed, but he just says the most ludicrous things. Um, And this is, of course, we know he's gaslit multiple women and manipulated women. He's moved house. He's done all these things to create distance. And he's not a man of good character. And again, it's a BGO, a blinding glimpse of the obvious, but it needs to be said that he's lied to the police, he's lied to immigration, he's lied under oath at the coroner's inquest, which is perjury, in fact. He lied about all the women, he's lied to his wife and children, he's not a credible person and has no decency, he has no integrity. So we cannot really rely on his account. That's the point. We cannot rely on what he's telling us as a credible source of information when it comes to Marion or anyone else. That's right. Because he's very shifting sands, Laura. So initially he starts off by saying that Marion rang his home. Then he says, oh no, I think she rang, rang me in a phone box, in a phone booth. So if you give the number, you can go down there and you can just stand and wait. And then when the person calls, it's as though they feel that they're calling your home, but in fact, they're calling a phone box. And then he said that he called her at the transit centre and that, oh no, then she called him at the transit centre in Ballina. And so th- this just goes on and on and on and on. So I guess how I've approached it from day dot is that anything that I can't verify outside of himself, so I just basically put in a big question mark pile and then attempt to verify the information as we go along. But it needs a secondary person to verify anything that he says because there's been so many provable lies and he even said himself on the stand that he didn't have good character and he that he, he was a person that had a long history of fraud. Yes, well, he had to admit to that. But when he was asked why so many names, he can't find an answer for it. So again, what it tells us is it's not congruent. And, and it just reminded me, Joni, in fact, we have discussed it. We've had a back and forth. But I go back to the New South Wales Police interview in 2021 and we talked about it on an episode and you mentioned the about the expletive. And I wanted to know what preceded that, what came before it. And actually this change in behaviour is really significant because it's what was put to him right before the, the end of the interview. And what was put to him was by Detective Senior Constable Sasha Pinazza, who had for well for two hours and 21 minutes he'd been questioned and he'd been relatively calm and collected 
But Detective Senior Constable Pinazza said to him, or put to him, allegations that he had ripped off a series of women in Australia and overseas before she asked him the critical questions. And she said to him, Mr Blum, did you murder Marion Barter? And Rick Blum said, are you kidding? Okay, so he answers the question with a question, and that's an indicator of deception. So language is really important. It's like a scaffolding, but it also buys him time. She says, no, I'm not kidding, and I expect you to answer me seriously. And Rick Bloom says, no, no, which is, we call it a fading fact. The declarative is no, and being indignant, right? But he says, no, no, which is a fading fact. And she then asks, did you in any way harm Marion Barter? And he says, no, I never harm anyone. So he didn't specifically say Marion. I didn't harm her. I didn't kill her. And that, again, points to deception. So the language of it is so important, of answering questions with a question. It's an indicator of deception. You don't always know why someone lies, but in some in this situation, it's very clear why someone's lying. He is being deceptive and he's buying time to think about what to say next. And she goes back in with a question. This is where the interrogation happens. This is a really important part. In America, it turns from interview to interrogation when you ask these questions and you have to have your follow-ups. And unfortunately, there wasn't the follow-up, which is where you would normally go. You would have an if-then strategy. And what then happens is they end the interview and someone leans over as if to turn the, the camera off in front of him, the nearest camera to him, and then they leave the room. And that's when he thinks he's alone. And then that's when he says the F-bomb. And you mentioned, we didn't talk about it in an episode, but we've been back and forth talking about it in messages. messages. And, you know, we talked about the narrowing of the eyes, the eyes going black, the, the sort of the anger, the, the mask slipping, the real Rick Bloom. This is the point where he's rattled. The demeanour has changed. That is significant. It's not just language. You've now got behaviour. And that's where the follow-up should have been. So unfortunately, now what you've got is someone who's had time to read everything, digest everything, create a strategy, which we'll come on to. But that expletive is very significant in terms of behavioural change, behavioural shift, how it happened, when it happened, the context that it happened in. So that's my point 30 about the language when that question's put to him. And I did talk about that with Alison Sandy, but I didn't know about the expletive that came afterwards, the, the end of the official interview and then the swearing, which is significant. Did you want to say anything about that, by the way, Janie? I've rushed on, but... I guess when I actually saw that, because I was, um, I guess, lucky enough to be able to actually physically sight and see that interview for my myself... My impression of it was that, yes, his demeanour totally changed. His eyes darkened, he, his whole facial expression changed, he dropped his head, he looked over to the side a little bit and let out almost this almighty roar with the expletive. So it wasn't just like a, you know, when you stub your toe or if you happen to drop something on your foot, it wasn't like that. It was very different to that. It was like it came up, it looked like a guttural sort of roar. And then as soon as the door opened behind him and another police officer walked in behind him, suddenly his behaviour changed instantly. He realised, he raised his eyes a little bit because I think he realised that he was still being recorded. 
and he shifted his body language and he basically went back to exactly the same physical stance that he had had prior to him dropping the head. And it was as though it had never even happened. There was no residual anything. He was just back to the kindly, elderly man, bumbling, trying his best to help, but not really having the answers. And it was a very significant moment. And it wasn't within the transcript of his interview. So we did request that that was actually put into the transcript of his interview because it wasn't there, wasn't present. So hopefully that has happened. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. That's what we call leakage and an unconscious utterance. And it's these things that are so important. And you're right. If you, you know, someone just describes to you the interview, they may not describe it in the way that you just have which is so important for someone like me to understand the demeanour, the nuance, the behaviour. And you might just read a transcript that doesn't give you that detail. But the fact that he can switch just like that, that he has the rage and is rattled and frustrated, that it's this sort of guttural, absolute frustration and anger being rattled and then being able to just switch back as soon as he knows he has to. That is what we know as the Jekyll and Hyde, the mask switching, right? And that tells me that he's very good at cosmetic management. And it links to his demeanour as we see him at the coroner's inquest with the wheelie walker and the bumbling, you know, the coming back, stuttering, and the ums and the ahs. Well, actually, he does that a lot more when he's lying. There's a lot more of that when he lies and he's clearly thinking about how he should lie and it's much more transparent actually but it tells us and it tells me that he's very aware of his demeanour and how he needs to be and that it's all a show it's all performance to be the little old man I couldn't hurt anybody because I can barely remember what name I was born with. But by the way, I do remember that Marion was sexually promiscuous and Queensland Police, I read an article, they said that she'd join a cult, and but he does remember those things to say very articulately when not even asked, so it's staggering. But that police interview, very important, and that behavioural change. Very, yeah. And at the time, the timing of it, the question that came before that evoked that response in him, that's when he was under pressure. That's when the follow-up should have happened. So 31 is relates to what we're talking about, his MO, the modus operandi, because he does think things through. So if we think about each woman, that Monique and Jeanette and Janet and Ghislaine, Andre, Charlotte, those that we know about, we can start to think about similar fact and bad character. And that's what you and I predominantly we've talked through. 
It's proven that he targets vulnerable women. That's not to be contested. It's proven in court. Multiple women who've never met giving very similar accounts as to one man's behaviour. And that's him using an ad or answering an ad, pretending he's a single man, love bombing or helping under the guise of helping somebody, but giving them something and charming them and flattering them. And the whirlwind nature, he accelerates relationships. So we think about this in the context of Marion, of the whirlwind, the accelerated timeline, the quick to offer promises of love or marriage or a new relationship or a new life abroad or a help with him helping with the business, with coins or a collection. But there's always some form of incentive and that incentive can change. But what a number of the women said that he's laser focused on money. And so some of them spotlighted that immediately, like Monique. I'm not sure whether Marion would have understood that And I'm not sure that all of them understood that it was financial to begin with because he dressed it up. And I think with Monique, it was quite different. And maybe with Marion, it was quite different if there were a genuine chemistry or they'd had a relationship before. So that's the question mark. But he isolates the women. He tells them to do things in secrecy. Most of them didn't do the full plan of secrecy, but we know that Marion did. And that's so we look at the similar things and we look at the differences He encourages most of them to sell their houses, not all of them, but we know Marion did. So again, Marion went through all the things that I believe he requested of her. And she goes to the point of selling her house, accelerated timeline, sells possessions. He takes possessions from some of them, not all of them. And he takes some of them to another country or another place. And when he doesn't get his way, he threatens And that, again, is another important point. We're not talking about violence. We're talking about the threat of, or even the menace, as Evelyn describes, she felt unsafe. And women know that, don't we? We know there's a power imbalance. We know when a man looks at us in a certain way or says things in a certain way, and he takes from the women. Having promised them the world, he takes from them. He takes from them and he gives them nothing. You see, and that's also another very similar fact of his modus operandi, promising them the world, taking from them, giving them nothing. And in fact, in all cases, he disappears. But in Marion's case, she disappeared. And it links really to point 32. When I'm talking about the similarities and differences, we talked about Marion and whether she would be compliant. If she had changed everything, if she'd sold her house, changed everything under the guise that she's married to him, they're starting this new life. Then she finds out, like Monique did, that he's married with children. Well, then Sally and others have said she was most likely not going to be compliant, that she would have said something. And that's where you've got the shift and the change with why Marion would be different. And I believe that because I look at compliance. I look at whether someone's malleable. What's the similarities What are the differences? For me, this is the difference for Marion, which is why I believe she's no longer here to tell her story. That's the difference. And Marion told no one. Certainly looking at Marion's past relationships too, like not to go into too much detail about them because the men are still living today, but 
she was certainly one where, yes, I mean, I, with all of my training and experience, I would see there were elements of coercive control within her prior relationships. There's just no doubt about that in my mind. But certainly at the end, she did leave. You know, she was strong enough in a way to leave. And so that sort of tells me that in this case too, if she had have sort of cottoned onto things, then she probably would have left this too. And as we know, at that stage, that is one of the highest risk times within a woman's life when she does decide to end the relationship or approach the person or talk about things. That is a really high risk time. So I think we are on the same page there. She wouldn't have taken this lying down. No, and we know separation with finality correlates to lethality for women when they're leaving a man, but also if they're going to expose them and expose what they've done. Because the other aspect with Marion is that in this situation, she's changed everything and she's lost everything. In essence, she's changed her career, she's changed her name, she's sold her house. She has made huge sacrifices So, and if she were to say, well, I'm going to tell your wife, I'm going to expose you, I'm going to tell everyone what you've done. And bearing in mind, she has done all of this in secret, where her other relationships have not been in secret. They've all been out in the open, but this one is wholly different. That's why I think it compounded, it exacerbates everything because of the secrecy. Because when things don't go the way that you think, when you've sacrificed everything, it has much more of a profound impact. Of course it does, doesn't it? No matter who you are. Yes. At the end of the day, Laura, I see her as being in his backyard. So being in Byron Bay, nobody knew that she was there. Nobody that cared about her knew that she was there. So she's in a very high risk, very vulnerable situation if things were to go badly. Nobody had any idea where she was, what she was doing in any way. And because Sally's report to the police, she went there. If the police had have only looked and followed up and actually bothered to locate her, even if she was in a home and she said, I'm fine, I'm happy, everything's good, then at least that would have had the person that she was with at least raising the eyebrows thinking, oh, someone knows she's here. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because law enforcement didn't do that at that stage, she again remained, despite her daughter's best efforts, highly vulnerable if she was still alive at that time too, of course. So I just wanted to add that in. Yes. And if there's a money component too, you know, it's not just uh, you lose everything. If there's a money component, it hires the stakes. So we're talking about the stakes increasing, aren't we? When we think about, well, why might he disappear Marion? Things have actually got very serious if money's also involved and Marion's changed her whole life. So that's a very important point or set of points. 33, because we're coming on to the last few now, is All the other women, Monique, Jeanette, Ghislaine, Janet, Andre, Charlotte, they give very compelling accounts, very compelling accounts about the same man and importantly, the same man they've never and the women have never met before. And that's significant. 34 relates to it that Rick Bloom lies about all those women, bar Monique. But even with Monique, he still lies. He still doesn't except it was a sexual relationship when the letters were read out in court where it clearly was a sexual relationship. And 
So he conversely lies about all the women. And I think about Andre Flum in particular, the wheelchair and dementia and the way he devalued, discredited her. And that was proven not to be the case. We all heard her give evidence. Ghislaine also, he said, for example, he wasn't engaged to her. Well, she had a copy of the announcement. So he said not just these lies about each individual woman, but he also said all the women were lying and that due to the Lady Vanishes podcast, that's what had brought them all together, where, of course, we know that each woman reported Barmanique to the authorities at the time. So there's a time date stamp that shows that they were not lying, but he was and he is. So again, it just talks to his lack of credibility um, that he is the proven liar and the women's accounts are all compelling. The converse of that. 35 is that he was living beyond his means and we've talked about his pension and we've talked about the fact that he was travelling, buying plane tickets and how did he afford this lifestyle? I mean, I would love to see the money trail, the forensic accounting. You know, how did he afford to do this? That's a mystery. 36 is his, it talks to the same thing, which is his extensive criminal history lying, stealing, fraud, manipulating, conning. His whole life is a lie. And he was doing this from a very young age. And we've talked about that. It's a blinding glimpse of the obvious. But again, it shows, again, he cannot be trusted in his account. So we want to see through the veneer of the little old man show that he's put on. And 37 talks to that. Throughout the evidence sessions, he's lied continuously and demonstrated a callous disregard to all the women bar Monique. The lack of responsibility taking, the lack of empathy, the lack of compassion for the women and what he's done really does stand out to me. And for Marion in particular, why, why is that? Why would you have such terrible things to say about someone who you had sex with a couple of times when you know all her family are sat there? Who does that? Who behaves that way, particularly when the family lightly thinks she's dead and they're seeking answers? That takes a very particular type of person to behave in the way that he has. So, you know, I've written, who does that? Him showing a callous disregard to the women, to Marion, but also to his ex-wives, to his children and to Diane. And I thought the interesting point for Diane was when he says she has a memory problem and he tries to devalue her in court. Oh, yes. Yeah. Out of left field, he volunteers that. Yes, yes. He just printed off a sheet from Google. It wasn't even a medical certificate or any kind of formal documentation that he put forward. He just printed off the name of some some syndrome off Google and he gave that as his evidence. Well, that for me was hugely significant when he brings that up about Diane, because again, it shows the continuous pattern of discrediting, devaluing even his own wife and why he would do that. Well, he wasn't even asked about it. It wasn't her evidence that she has a memory problem. And the irony was it's he was the one with the memory problem at each critical point where he's asked key things. He's the one that has the memory problem. So what I know about coercive controllers is they try to control the narrative and they will try and influence how other people perceive the target if they cannot influence the target. And what I mean by that is that when Diane's giving her evidence, he cannot interfere with her. He can coach her and tell her what to say. But at the time when she says significant things, so the only way he can do it is sow the seed of doubt to corral others to think that she's not reliable, 
when he's not even asked. And he was challenged about that. In fact, counsel got fairly uh, stroppy with him about him doing that. And this callous disregard for women and the women he's meant to care for, well, the lack of responsibility taking and empathy, the lack of compassion, all this points me in the direction that he's likely a psychopath of looking at those traits of who behaves like that. A coercive controller, yes, but a psychopath, I've seen many of them obfuscate, lack of compassion, lack of empathy, lack of remorse, lack of responsibility taking, this callous disregard and tone-deaf understanding of where you are other than to attend to your own image management, i.e. Sally can go hang, he doesn't care what he says about Marion. In fact, he intentionally tries to humiliate and discredit and says the worst things that you possibly can about Sally's mother. It's unacceptable, but it could be missed. Yes, yes. And he, he also brings in Marion's sister into that too. Even her sister said that in her statement that she was very free with men. So he likes to sort of bring in others as well and sort of co-opt other people that are close to her to back up his views. Yes, well, I think that that was the bridge that he used. And he'd obviously read it somewhere and he refers to her, which tells me that he's gone through the file extensively and he's looking to oh, absolutely. create a manufacturer narrative and he'll hang on to anything that he can. But the sister, Deirdre, isn't the one who's in the spotlight for a number of women, you know, of harming a number of women, but Rick Blum is. So he has motive, means and opportunity. And that's why these things are of significance when talking about him specifically. We've talked about, 38 for me is the poison reference that we've talked about already. The book, The Poison with Evelyn, How to Kill Someone, things in his own words. And of course, then we've got Ilona, We've got his own family as well, brother suddenly dropping dead. We've got his previous wife, Nicole, who's missing. And of course, we've got Marion. So both had contact with him and neither can be found. And that to me is significant. Until Nicole shows up and there's sign we know that she's alive, for me, she's still a question with Marion. Where are they? And 39 is in Rick Bloom's own words that he's killed people. And he said that to Monique. He said that to Evelyn. So we have to take that part seriously. Not many people would turn around and say that in the context of everything that we know. 40 is a BGO, and that's that he lawyered up. He got a good lawyer when he came back to give evidence. Why? He's just a witness at this point. Why lawyer up? That tells me he knows that he really is in some form of trouble to, to have a lawyer. And the 41, it's actually one more because of the police interview and his own language when asked about, did he kill Marion? So 41 is the poor me syndrome. It talks back to that of building this image. And poor me syndrome, I mean, it's a coin, it's a term I coined in 2019 from working a lot of these cases. I really only see PMS at the point of accountability. It's the point where somebody is being held to account, the symptoms become very acute and you don't see them prior. And with the wheelie walker to elicit sympathy, you know, this is a grade A manipulator. This is somebody who knows what he's doing, similar to the F-bomb being dropped and then some, the police officer walks in and it's direct change in behaviour. So they're my 41 points of circumstantial evidence and, you know, in the context that these are power and control related crimes, which we talked about when we first started speaking and that it's not just about money, but he doesn't like being questioned and challenged. 
he denied knowing Marion. He lied his lied about that. He changed his story. And there's not one piece of evidence that points to Marion being alive, sadly. Rick Bloom had motive, method and opportunity more than anyone else. In fact, there's no one else in this case that stands out. There's nobody else that you can see. He is the only person, but yet he is the only person as well putting other men in the frame and talking about her joining a cult. So that's significant. So every piece of evidence does, in my opinion, point in one direction to Rick Bloom. And I repeat my mantra, which is justice has no age, even though he has the wheelie walker, even though he is presenting as I'm this poor old man, he has done great harm, great harm that's irreparable, actually, to, to many women. And in my opinion, he must be held to account and justice has no age. And that's what people have to think about when, well, he's old, is there any point in the coroner making the decision to properly investigate him or from the the director of prosecutions to decide to charge Rick Bloom? Well, for the women and for Marion and for Sally and for the family, it's really important. And the case can be built. This is 41 points. There may be others you want to add into that, Joni, as well. But that is extensive. And in my opinion, it's comprehensive. And it leaves me in no doubt where I would be looking. The only other one that I would add, Laura, because it's such an extensive list, it's fantastic, is the fact that when Marion did return to Australia, she went to within a 20, 25-minute drive of his home. So she had money. So she could have gone anywhere else in the world. If she hadn't have wanted to stay in the UK, she could have gone anywhere else. But the fact that she came back and she was literally in his backyard, that to me is a very significant point of its own. She didn't go back to her hunting ground of the Gold Coast or Brisbane or Queensland. She didn't go down to southern New South Wales where she lived prior to moving to Queensland. She didn't contact any family members. She was there. She was right there, literally on his doorstep. So that to me, you might have even said it, but that to me is a very, very significant point and that it's very comprehensive. You've done a great job of that. Thank you. I mean, that was the point that it's his anchor point. We call them anchor points where in, in someone's life course, you know, where they go to the swimming club, where they take the children to whatever activity, where they go to work, where their home is. There's the significant anchor points. It's his anchor points. It's not hers. And that is the significance of, of Grafton. And that's the significance of Marion returning back home. But it, she's not seeing it as home, but she's in his anchor point, not hers. Yes, that's right. That's exactly right. And why? What other explanation could there be for her being in his anchor point? Yes, well, it tells us that, and it tells me that she came back most likely because of someone and they were doing something. And that something where it ended is in her being disappeared. And what information came to light to her, you know, I do believe he, it most likely came out about Diane and the children. I think that he was truthful when he was saying that bit. I told her about, and I couldn't continue with this charade, his word. So I believe that that did happen. But what he doesn't say is what happened thereafter. What he doesn't say is... Marion's reaction to that, and that's an omission. That's a lie of omission. 
And again, when people lie, they're either putting information in or maybe it's a lie of omission, what they're not saying. So there are lots of follow-ups that I would have to Rick Bloom if I was interviewing him slash interrogating him. And one of the biggest problems when people aren't trained in interview and interrogation is they miss the follow-up. They ask the critical question, but they don't go in with the follow-ups. And that's where the gold is. And you have to be prepared for that. And I'm not sure whether New South Wales took it quite so seriously at first. I can't say with any confidence that they did, because if that was the end of the official interview, they ask him that question and they don't follow up on what he said and they go, they leave the room and they miss the expletive and they don't come back and start an interrogation, even though in Australia they don't call it an interrogation, the same as the UK. Well, that's points of failure. And I have to just be quite clear about that. You know, having spent time training at the FBI in interview and interrogation and thinking very carefully about strategies and plans, you've got someone, Rick Bloom, who is a grade A manipulator. You have to bring your A game. And I don't believe that that's happened. Yes, that in me actually looking at the interview and just being acutely aware that I am a regular community member. <laughs> I'm not an investigator, but I guess my impression, if I can say, was that there was the interview about the fraud, about the history, etc. And that question was very much on its own. And then that was where it ended. So there was sort of not even any follow-up to that key question. It just came out of nowhere. And perhaps there was an element of surprise. That was the plan. But I sort of felt as though you had the interview, things were trundling along, there was no major revelations, he agreed with most things, she had the paperwork there, providing him with all the evidence and the information, then all of a sudden there was a pause, boom, we get asked the question, I'm sitting there, we're waiting, and then all of a sudden the interview is literally over and the door's opening and the investigators are walking out. So to me not being critical because I don't know, I'm not an investigator. But to me, in my opinion, there was a lost opportunity there to then follow along because when I saw him looking down and just the absolute anger and rage inside, I wondered myself at that time that if they had have just pushed a little bit further with that anger building, whether there may have been some kind of moment there that was potentially missed. But Again, yeah, I'm a bit hesitant because I'm not not even a trained investigator, but that's just my personal opinion, yeah, of what I saw. And sharing your observations is fine, Joni. And, you know, I have to say it's a huge missed opportunity. They had him under pressure. You have to expect, if you're going to go in there with that, with the ultimate question, you've got to be prepared for what comes next. It can't just be a tick the box. And, you know, it could be a shake the tree strategy, but even then you've got to be prepared. They had him he was under pressure. So you don't just leave the room or not watch the camera. You know, let's say they intentionally left the room, but the point where he swears, that's when they know that's the follow-up. That behavioural change is significant. That's what he's rattled about and the deception. We're talking about 2021. We're not talking about 1997. We're talking about 2021 where, you know, as I always say to police, these are the most dangerous types of perpetrator. If you bring them in to interview them, you've got to be on your A game. You've got to be prepared. A coercive controller, 
You know, I haven't assessed Rick Bloom, so I can't say about psychopathy other than I do see psychopathy traits. I do see those traits in the way that he presents and they're significant. And I'm not sure what he would score. He's certainly felt 41 points when it comes to circumstantial evidence. But in my opinion, that was a huge missed opportunity on on those two points. And I can refer to what was said. His language uh, is deceptive. And these are the critical questions. If you have nothing to hide, you do not have to lie. You don't have to answer the question with a question. It's just a straight no. That's it. You know, a lot of these questions, they're just simple yes or no or give the detail. That's it. But he does more than that in the areas that he needs to create distance. He does an oversell, overcompensates, and I don't buy what he's selling. And that's where you, if you bring him in for interview, you've got to be, you've got to have all your notes. Like I'm sat here with four legal pads surrounding me, my notes on the computer. You have to know exactly where you're going to go with someone like him. You have to be in the detail of it. So it may well have been an exploratory interview, but I wouldn't expect that in 2021, the lack of preparation. I hope things step up a little bit here. And of course, we've got, you know, Liam Bartlett. And I thought it was a very interesting point that when Rick Bloom did reappear and he's with his lawyer in the car taken to the side entrance at the court, he is the one that's protected. He's the one that has security at the court gates who's ushering him in. And Liam Bartlett from Spotlight was frustrated trying to get, you know, a a question to Rick Bloom. And yet he has two security staff come to tell him he has to leave and go out the gate. And I have to say the irony is not lost on me that there they are protecting him. Where were they when the women were reporting? Where were they when it comes down to protecting women? And yet there they are protecting him. And it made me feel pretty angry about that. You know, what what does our system do in the way that we respond to people? It's not not okay. Yes. And I mean, Laura, to add to that too, if I might, if I may, the first time Sally went to court was in Ballina. And we had asked numerous times, because I was very concerned that Sally was going to actually run into Rick Bloom coming in and out of the court. And I wondered whether that was going to be, but Sally was not protected in any way. Sally was literally sat outside the court with her daughter and Rick Bloom turned up in a maxi taxi and they're literally, because the door was locked. So they are literally standing on the same veranda with each other, waiting to come into court. And I just felt that that was very inappropriate and it should have been planned out. And I'm very conscious of criticising the process because maybe that's not the right thing to do. But I do want to put it out there that I do feel that people need to actually be looking at who is the aggrieved person here who is the victim, so to speak, and what kind of protection is given to them? Because Sally is literally sat on a chair in front of the court, the maxi taxi opens, and that's the first time that she's actually seen who Rick Bloom is, and they have to sit there and wait it out with each other for the door to be opened. I just didn't think that was okay. No. And 
Look, when we talk about things and we share observations, it's not about criticism, it's about learning. And the learning is important because for the next case, the next case, as you know, you know, as a professional, everyone wants to get better at what they do. And unless they hear about these experiences, then it's very difficult to improve things. So I think we're having honest conversations. And, and for me, having run the Homicide Prevention Unit, there is an element where I'm always looking for that learning of how do we get better to protect victims? How do we protect women better? So, you know, I say it as someone seasoned in, in my world that the only way you get better is to have honesty. And yes, it's painful at times to have to hear, but you have to have honest critique and, and feedback. You know, in the Met, we had critical friends where we'd go to people to give us the warts and all account of how we can improve. And I was always very pro that, and I still am. But as I said before, I... Just because he's old, it, it doesn't mean to say he's not a danger. It doesn't mean to say that others are still not living under his coercive control. And that ability to flip, you know, the the anger and resentment and frustration, that was clear when he swore. And then the ability to just flip the switch and present as something else. Well, again, that shows me who he really is. And... I believe that he's still a risk and a danger. And it's for the coroner. They have to cut through the the BS. They have to cut through the image management and all the noise of the case and focus on what's important. And that's why I went to the trouble of talking to Sally again, talking to you, going through the case file, of writing it up of 41 points, because these are key points of how you build a case when it's circumstantial and when you don't have a body, no body homicide, but you suspect, uh, you know, and I suspect the coroner will determine that Marion is deceased. There's no sign that she's alive. So when that happens, they have to explain what they believe. You know, if she's dead, cause of death, manner of death, how did she die? Well, we've just got everything pointing in one direction. We don't know the how, but oftentimes with cases you don't. And a prosecutor doesn't have to prove that. The prosecutor doesn't have to prove motive. It helps with the storytelling for people to understand, but they don't have to prove the motive and the how it happened. It's for the jury to make that determination. It's for those who hear all the evidence on the balance of probability and reasonable doubt. Is there reasonable doubt with, with Rick Bloom? Well, for me, everything points in that one direction. If he's the last one to see her alive, which I believe he is, we haven't got anybody else coming forward and saying, oh, I saw Marion in X, Y and Z. And even if we do, well, that happened with Lynette Dawson and it turned out to be false. Even if we do get false accounts of people saying, but we haven't had people coming forward. Oh, she's living in Tunbridge Wells. She's living in, you know, we still say, if you know anything, please come forward. Please do share that. I mean, this is a search for truth. It's not about we must fit everything in one direction. It's about looking at the accumulation, the totality of the case. And what do we see? And I cut through the noise. That is one of my skills of being able to see, well, what's significant and what, what's not. And these 41 points are all very significant. And as you know, Joni, there are many other things too. There are, but you focus on what's the most important. So anyway, that's a long way of, you know, wrapping it. But, you know, I do feel for Sally, and I've always said this, the answer is in this extensive case file that you've all created You've all created it from this incredible reinvestigation that so many people have been a part of. 
And then with the coroner's inquest, it gives us the opportunity to see him under the microscope being asked the questions, see him under pressure, see him when he lies, see the women give evidence and very compelling evidence about his behaviour and actually prove that he is a liar. Well, why did he lie about them? He's lying to discredit them. The same as what he's saying about Marion. It's the same behaviour. He's discrediting her, only she's not here to give her account. So we mustn't let his be the dominant narrative. That, for me, is an important point, that he mustn't have the last word on this and be the dominant narrative just because he said, you know, when he's asked, did he kill her? Are you kidding? And then, no, no. Well, that's just not good enough. Did you harm her? Did you seriously harm her? I harmed no one. I never harm no one. You know, even that, he's not being specific to her. So let's see what happens on... Yes. He Just to quickly add to that, he even says in the court when he is asked that question again by Adam Castleton, I harm no one. I not even harm an animal. So he actually adds to that within the inquest itself that he mentions not harming animals either. So it's like he's stressing that point. Yeah, but it's extraneous information. You know, and that's why looking at how he replies, when he lies, how with the overselling of the lies at certain points, they're the critical points that mean something to him. Yeah, I mean, he thinks if he dresses it up or obfuscates, people forget what the clear point is. But he's, in my opinion, been doing this all his life and he's gotten away with it. So we're just seeing... More Normally, if he says something, well, then that's he's just taken at his word because he looks and sounds plausible. He sounds like a learned man. He's got different languages that he speaks and the accent. A lot of people really like that accent and that adds to the cloak of credibility. But I see through it and I don't buy any point of what he's selling. And certainly it's the women's testimonies that are the most compelling. Yes, very much so. Anything else to add before we wrap? Yes, if I could just do a shout out, please, just to, it's remained our call from for all the years is if you could just stop for a second, anyone listening all around the world and think, is there anyone in my family that's of perhaps an advanced age that has gone missing and it's been on, on their own volition, but there has been questions in the family about whether that was accurate or not. If you could just please attempt to do something about that. And also, if you have anyone in your family that has been taken advantage of, defrauded, been involved in a romance scam type situation back in the 90s, back in the 80s, in the early 2000s, if you could please just come forward to us, that would be really good. And if you did also know Mr. Rick Bloom as well, we really encourage you to come forward and speak to us. We are very confidential. The amount of information that we hold that has never been made public is extensive and we're very true to our word. So that would be my shout out. And just to thank you so much for all of your effort, time, interest, skills, and just coming on board with this. It's been absolutely incredible. And we really do thank you very much for everything you've done. Thank you. Thank you, Joni. That's, that's very sweet to say. And yes, it's a, it's a lot of work, but I wanted to, to help and to use my skill set. I'm not being paid to do this. I'm doing it purely from a point of view that I want to help Sally. I want to help you. I want to get answers 
for Sally and for her family. And of course, Tom Riddell has also requested information as well. And you helpfully put his article on the, or he put it on, on missing person Marion Barter. He's appealing for people from Luxembourg who know either anything about Marion, but also about Rick Blum. And people do move. They live in different parts of the world. I've got listeners all around the world. So again, I'll put the contact details in the show notes. But if you do know anything regarding Marion or regarding Rick Bloom, the man of many names, of course, then please do get in, in touch with Joni and also with Tom Riddell and the Lady Vanishes podcast. You can also go through that mechanism as well. And Next, we'll be talking, you know, in terms of the coroner's findings, February 29th, 2024. So I have everything crossed for that. I really want to support Sally and I hope the right decisions are made, right? The right outcome is is reached, whatever. I think it's a tough set of decisions to make, but we'll see. So thank you very much, Joni. I appreciate your time. It's been incredible and we're in there saying we're thinking about Marion, we're thinking about Sally. And if you know anything, please do make contact with missing person Marion Barter with Sally and Joni. I'm jumping in here to wrap the episode and season for now. What did you make of the final episode in the series? I know so many of you thought you knew Marion's case, but there is a lot more that you learn from my fascinating conversations with Sally and Joni, two remarkable women, and I wanted you to hear their voices. And of course, for me, it's invaluable to hear the details, some of the details that have not been talked about before. And then I can give my analysis. Some final thoughts. There's a reward for information, $500,000. So do contact Sally, Joni, or Alison Sandy at The Lady Vanishes, or Tom Rudell, the journalist who I just mentioned, who has done fantastic work in Luxembourg. His article and contact details, along with Sally and Joni and Alison's, are in the show notes. Sadly, everything points to Marion being deceased. There's still money in her accounts, for example, and there have been no credible sightings of Marion nor has there been any contact with her loved ones. And bear in mind that when she went overseas on this trip of a lifetime, she stayed in contact with Sally and her family and friends. She also future planned to attend Sally's wedding. As I mentioned, I do wonder about a possible wedding in Japan at Hotel Nico in Narita, given the choice of letterhead that Mariam wrote to Sally on. I recall Mick Jagger and Jerry Hall believing that their wedding in Bali was legally valid in 1990, and it turned out not to be. It was plastered all over the media, so I wonder if that was on Rick Bloom's radar. Was that his game? I suspect it was, hence his promises of marriage to multiple women when he was already married to Diane, and he had a life with her and children. Remember, he also traveled out of Australia just days before Marion under the Westbury name. So whatever he was doing, he was up to no good and wanted to fly under the radar. If they did get married, perhaps Marion didn't want to be judged or questioned, or perhaps she didn't want to overshadow Sally's wedding, or perhaps Rick Bloom told her to say nothing, just like he did with the other women. And that could also be why she said nothing. 
Marion was in a very vulnerable position. She changed her name, gave up everything. She went overseas and no one knew where she was and therefore she was highly vulnerable. The name change was strange too. Four names. I remember when I first heard it. Florabella, Natalia, Marion, Remical. That name tied her to Rick Bloom. Make no mistake about that. And when I first heard the name, I wondered, had she joined a cult? Therefore, when I heard the cult suggestion from Rick Bloom himself, it compounded my belief that this bloke was incredibly devious and manipulative. It's not his first rodeo, and I believe it was deliberate and intentional, paving the way for his Marion was strange. She was always chasing men, she always wanted sex, and she joined a cult narrative in order to set the stage and make it look like Marion was an oddball and that she was the one behaving in an odd way. I believe he incentivized her behavior and he coerced Marion using false promises and false information, controlling her and dominating her thoughts and her actions. However, to others with a less questioning and curious mind, they would buy into the lazy narrative that Marion did this all of her own accord, totally out of the blue. Given the totality of the circumstances, which I have discussed on Crime Analyst and on The Lady Vanishes, I don't believe that to be true. Rick Bloom lied and lied again. He lied to immigration, he lied to the women, he lied to his wife and children, he lied to the police, and he lied under oath to the coroner, her magistrate, Teresa O'Sullivan. In my opinion, Rick Bloom is not a credible person, and his word counts for nothing. Sally's counsel said he should be arrested for perjury and giving false evidence, and that's the least of it. And I agree. It's very serious what he's done. But to David Murray, there he is laughing about it. He's making a mockery of the system and everyone in it. It's time for some accountability. The BGOs, the blinding glimpses of the obvious, must not be ignored. The totality of the circumstances cannot and must not be ignored. If they are, what's the message to Marion's family? What's the message to women? And what's the message to all other men who choose to act in this way to women? We've all heard enough. And Rick Bloom and his many, many names must be brought to book and face the consequences of his actions. Marion matters. Women matter. The missing matter. Accountability and truth and justice matter and have no age. Until next time, be curious, ask questions and always trust your instinct. Here's my final thought and ask before the episode wraps. I really appreciate you listening to Crime Analyst. And if you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to me. It really helps others find me and my work, and it helps with the ratings too. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. 
cover art and graphics by Chris Raybottom at Syndicate, and music by Kilrood. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.